hope is in the Lord. Now, let us turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And tonight we want to read from verse 12 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 13 to continue the subject of sacrifice, suffering, and sanctification. So verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. May God bless the reading of his word. Now you know in light of our Lord's sacrifice, which is a single sacrifice for our sins, this chapter, Hebrews chapter 13, revolves around our response to that single sacrifice that the Lord Jesus made. Not only our response to the sacrifice of Jesus, but in light of that sacrifice, also our responsibilities as Christians to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus made sacrifice for us, and in light of that, our response and our responsibilities are to be a reciprocal sacrifice. In fact, he's going to go on in chapter in verse 15 and onwards to talk about the kind of sacrifice that we ought to make as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this reciprocal sacrifice on my part, on your part, is because of, of course, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and has accomplished on our behalf for us. And so this is the epistle to the Hebrews. It's about the sacrifice that Jesus made. It is a theology that is so powerful and so rich that uh, if there was one book, as you know, sometimes people will tell you what one book would they like in prison or something like that. This is the book that I would like beyond all other books. Because in this book, you have everything revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ and about his work in particular, his work as a high priest, his work of sacrifice and his work of intercession. And it's such an important uh, doctrine for us to understand the work of the Lord Jesus, which of course flows beautifully from the doctrine of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what you and I are called upon to be and to do as Christians in light of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is now what the writer to the Hebrews is urging these Hebrew Christians to think about. I want you to think about the sacrifice that Jesus made. I want to think about the consequences and the repercussions of that. You will notice, for instance, he began this chapter back in verse 1 with a kind of sacrifice that has to be made. Let brotherly love continue. Let your love for one another persist. Let it be ongoing, which is a kind of sacrifice, a laying down of our lives for the brothers. That is sacrifice. So this is a, the obligations that are laid upon us because of who we are as Christians are sacrificial in response. They require something of us. They cost us something. And in verses 15 and 16, of course, here in this text, uh, in chapter 13, he concludes those injunctions 
those requests that he makes of the Hebrews and therefore that he makes of us. Now, the interesting thing about a sacrifice that we are called upon to make is you can make a sacrifice willingly or you can make a sacrifice unwillingly, which would be grudgingly. And of course, that's no sacrifice at all. That's, uh, that's not even what we are thinking. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't even entertain the idea that you should make an unwilling sacrifice in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So the life of a Christian is really a response, isn't it, uh, in the context of this chapter and the whole epistle to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them. He has made atonement, he has made sacrifice, he has suffered in their place, and now, exalted to the Father's right hand, he continues his work, not of sacrifice, but of interceding, of service on behalf of his people. And so in one sense, the work of Jesus is not done. He has done one part of it as a high priest. He has offered himself a single offering for sin. And now having done that, he seats himself and is seated at God's right hand to intercede from our response. And so you can see when you look at verse 13, for example, in one sense, verse 13 is simply just a response uh, to what Jesus has done. Therefore, let us go to him. In light of verse 12, sacrifice, suffering of Jesus, let us go, he says, to Jesus. And verse 12, of course, is simply making the connection, isn't it? If you look at verse 11, so he's going from verse 12 uh, back to verse 11 in connection when he says in verse 11 that the carcasses of the animals that were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement were carried outside the camp. Why were they carried outside the camp, verse 11? Because they needed to be completely consumed and burned up, nothing remaining. And that, of course, is straight out of the Old Testament, isn't it? The Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27, which instructs the people of Israel precisely what to do with that kind of sacrifice that is made on that one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Now, the interesting thing about the camp of Israel and the tabernacle of Israel is that it stands on what we could say is holy ground. That it is consecrated. That the tabernacle of God and the camp of God, the people of God, are set apart by God to be holy to Him. Everything that takes place within the confines of that camp and that tabernacle is to be a holy practice, a holy thing. And so this gathering of Israel to the tabernacle, around the tabernacle, you remember how their camp is laid out, right? There's three tribes on one side, three tribes on the other, and so on around the, the camp. Because the work in the middle of the camp, in the tabernacle, is always ongoing, and it is always sacrificial, and it is always atoning. It's bloodshed. Therefore, what takes place in the camp and in the tabernacle is regarded by God as that which is holy. That which is set apart, that which is sanctified, purified, but outside the camp, as verse 11 says, outside the gates or the, the confines of the camp of Israel, that is unholy ground, that is profane ground, that is unclean ground, which is why, of course, when you read about on the Day of Atonement how that man will take the scapegoat, put it on his shoulders, and go outside the camp into the wilderness and let that goat go, which will then perish, signifying the removal of sins from the camp 
and done away with, gone. But he, the man who bore the beast or the animal outside the camp, he cannot just come back in and waltz himself into the camp. He must stay outside. He must wash his body and he must wash his clothes. He must sanctify himself, if I can use that word. He must purify himself so that he can re-enter into the confines of the camp of Israel, the camp and the tabernacle. He has to purify himself. He has to sanctify himself. He has to cleanse himself of the defilement of being outside the camp. Outside the camp. In other words, he's considered unclean. He's regarded as unholy. And therefore, he has to cleanse himself. He has to wash his clothes and his body. And then he can come back in. And that's why the writer makes his statement in verse 12 when he says to us that Jesus goes outside the gate. Notice verse 12. So Jesus, so, connecting to verse 11, the practice of what happened in the Old Testament, burning the, the rest of the sacrifice outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, or sorry, yes, to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Jesus goes outside the gate. Which gate are we talking about? We're talking about the gates of Jerusalem. We're talking about the confines of that holy city, the city of Jerusalem. That Jesus goes outside the city walls. Jesus goes through the gates of Jerusalem, outside the gates of the Jerusalem, because Jerusalem within its walls is regarded as holy ground. But not outside. That is not holy ground. That is unholy ground. Jesus goes outside the camp to unholy ground, to an unholy place. And there, on that hill, that incline, outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the gates, he makes sacrifice. He sacrifices himself. He lays down his life. He gives himself. Any Hebrew, any Israelite would be absolutely shocked to think that sacrifice outside the camp would ever atone for their sins. No, it's unholy. Anything that takes place out there has to do with uncleanness, has to do with that which is not holy and so on. So Calvary is defilement. Calvary is uncleanness. Every sacrifice that is made within the confines of the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple within the confines of the city of Jerusalem, any sacrifice that is made there, those places are holy ground within the walls, within the city, within the gates. But Jesus, he goes outside the gate. He goes from holy ground to unholy ground, and there, outside the temple, outside the holy place, outside the holy city, he makes sacrifice, and the Bible tells us here, by that sacrifice, by his sufferings, he sanctifies his people. He cleanses them. So what did Jesus do by going outside? Right? I mean, why couldn't he die inside? Why does he die outside the camp? What's the significance of that? 
Well, the significance of that is very significant, if I can say it like that, because it marks the end, the absolute end of needing a holy place to make sacrifices for sins. Because Jesus is going to demolish, dismantle everything that Jerusalem, everything that the temple stands for by removing himself and going outside to a place of defilement and unholiness. But there's much more than that because what Jesus did was to identify himself with a world of sin which is outside, which is represented by outside the gate, a world of sin that is filled with uncleanness, filled with unholiness. When you look at what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus, which we read about in John chapter 19, it says that he went outside to the place called Golgotha, and there he laid down his life. The, the, the actions of the Romans and their vileness and wickedness in crucifying Jesus and the heartfelt rebellion and stubborn wickedness of the, the Hebrew uh, leaders all culminates in what they did to Jesus outside the gate. They regarded him as unclean and they wanted nothing to do with him. And what Jesus did was, by going outside, was to identify with a world loaded with sin, filled with uncleanness, filled with defilement. You know and I know that you cannot approach God because of sin. You can't just come into the presence of God. You can only come with sacrifice. The whole Old Testament is filled with that idea, isn't it? All the different kinds of sacrifices, all the burnt offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, all of those are designed, you come to God, and when you come to God, you come with a sacrifice, and God does certain things via or through those sacrifices. If it's sin offering, burnt offering, guilt offering, then he assuages uh, the guilt, takes away the guilt, pardons their iniquities, and so on. Nobody can approach God because of their guilt and because of their sin. We cannot draw near to God. So God draws near to us. Jesus goes to the place of uncleanness where you are and where I am. Jesus goes to your place of defilement, who you are, what you are made up and like, filthy with sin. Jesus goes there to identify himself with that world, with you, with us in our uncleanness. So God draws near to us in the person of his Son, his Holy Son. And what does the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, do for us? He goes to this unholy ground. Remember we talked originally about the place. He goes to this place, this unholy ground, and there at the unholy ground he makes his holiness available to us. Because he is innocent, blameless, undefiled, perfect. And there in the unholy place, he offers himself in exchange for our unholiness. That's the whole doctrine of the imputation of our sin and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. That's what he does. He makes his holiness in exchange for our sin. He makes it available to us. So our unholiness and our uncleanness, in the place of uncleanness, he offers himself and he takes it upon himself. And so he makes atonement for your sin and my sin. You know, we become uh, so familiar, I think, with, with these kinds of truths because we know them so well. 
And familiarity has, has a problem with it. It diminishes our sharp perception and our reality. We just we take it for granted. We accept it. We go, in fact, that's how you, you operate your life. You operate your life around familiarity. Uh, you can walk around your house knowing where things are without really thinking about it. Uh, we are familiar with things, and because we become familiar with things, we neglect our perception of the reality of those things. And that's exactly what can happen to us as Christians when we talk about the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ made. Because we are so familiar with the Gospels and so familiar with these things, we just accept them. But there is something sharp and something powerful and potent in what Jesus did. That if we allow ourselves to become familiar, too familiar with these things, we lose the reality of what Jesus does. We need reminding, always, of what Jesus did for us. And sometimes you hear people might complain about, well, the gospel, I hear the gospel all the time, I need more than the gospel. No, you don't. You need the gospel and everything. There is the gospel. We always need to be reminded of the gospel and the consequences of the gospel, which is practical life and practical living and reality. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That's a great exchange, isn't it? He made his son to be sin for us who were sinful. He took our sins upon himself. So my sin for Jesus' righteousness outside the gate. So outside the gate, what does Jesus do? He suffers, he sacrifices, and he sanctifies his people. He makes his people holy. That the possibility of this people that he dies to save, they shall be holy. Because he has secured their sanctification. Perfected by his one offering for sin forever. These people. So he renders his people acceptable to God. He, he renders you acceptable to God by his death, by his sacrifice in your place and on your behalf. He, he takes your defilement and my defilement. He takes your guilt and unholiness and he gives us his righteousness, his holiness, his purity, his perfection in exchange. Or to put it the way Paul thinks about it and others think about it, he sets us apart as holy to God. We who were alienated, we who were estranged from God, He brings us near. It's reconciliation, isn't it? God drawing near to us when He doesn't have to, but He does because He loves. In fact, in Hebrews 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, they all have one source. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Brethren. And I'd like to show you some of that. If you turn to Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, and verse 13, Hebrews 9, verse 13. Well, for instance, if you look at verse 11, 
for connection. But when Christ, Hebrews 9, 11, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Something the Old Testament sacrifices could never achieve, right? Eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, Old Testament sacrifices, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In Hebrews 10, verse 10 tells us that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. One-time sacrifices. And Hebrews 10.14 says that for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My sanctification and your sanctification is because of sacrifice made. Jesus' sacrifice leads to my sanctification. It can go nowhere else. Such a glorious work of redemption then is what we find here and it demands a response i mean what will you do with such a knowledge what will you do with this knowledge of christ that he has done this on your behalf you know there's nothing missing absolutely nothing that is missing or lacking from what the lord jesus christ has accomplished on our behalf he provides a certain redemption he provides a sure salvation he provides a definite atonement he secures redemption for us. He accomplishes redemption. It's the Holy Spirit who will apply redemption through regeneration to us. So our redemption, which brings about a complete restoration of man to God, of yourself to God, and a complete reconciliation between ourselves and God, is achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, outside the gate, outside Jerusalem outside the temple. Those places of sacrifice, the temple, because remember, right as Jesus dies, thousands, millions of Passover lambs are being slain. But the one Passover lamb is slain outside the gate, and his one sacrifice on Golgotha atones for all of our sins, which all of the sacrifices within the confines of the city of Jerusalem and within that holy temple can never do. So that by his single offering of himself, he just dismantles whatever's taking place inside the city. Doesn't mean a thing. Isn't that why the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom? Signifying that there's nothing holding us back from going directly to God. How shocked the priests must have been who were working there. There goes the temple curtain, right? From top. To bottom by the hand of God signifying this is all of no value anymore because the one true sacrifice that God requires is dying 
outside the gate, outside the city, outside this holy place that you, Israel, regard as absolutely holy. John Owen says that we are acquitted by the atonement, and as a result of that acquittal, we are prompted, he says, to make a sacred dedication in return, to do something in response to what Jesus has done. So I could put it to you like this, since Jesus gave all, everything for you, you are required to give all or everything to Jesus. Why would you hold anything back? Jesus held nothing back. He gave himself completely. So notice verse 13, because verse 13 tells us what we must do. Therefore, let us go to him, where is he? Outside the camp, and bear the reproach that he endured. Let us go to him. That's what I must do. You remember how the Lord Jesus reminded his disciples in the Gospels, in Matthew, for instance, and he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough, enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. Meaning if this is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it is enough for you to be just like that, to be like the teacher to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wish to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we also have to, verse 13, go outside the camp. We have to go outside the camp, where the cross is. Remember, we have an altar that they have no right to eat at, he says in the previous verses. The altar is the cross where Jesus died. That's where we go to. The Lord Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, in addition to other places in the Gospel, that if anyone wishes to come after me, then he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And if you break that statement down about discipleship, what is expected of all the followers of Jesus, of all the disciples of Jesus, if you wish to go after Jesus, you wish it, you desire it, then Jesus says you must not think about it, but you must deny yourself, and not only that, but you must take up your cross every day, daily, and then follow Him. It is, a, it is a life of denial, isn't it? It is a life of self-death. The sacrifice I'm called upon to make because I am going out to Jesus because of His sacrifice is to sacrifice myself in return. Which is why He says in verse 15, let us then continually offer up to Him a sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving. This is what the writer is thinking about in verse 13. And I love how he puts it in verse 13, let us go to Him. Let us go to him. Must go to Jesus. So the cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem is shameful and is too unclean for the holy city Jerusalem and for the holy temple. It's too unclean. But that's where Jesus is. So verse 12 says, we must go outside the gate. Uh, sorry, outside the gate, yes. So to follow Christ always is to go where Christ is, to be where Jesus is, to die daily. And you know, we are called upon not only to separate ourselves from our past life, our sinful past life, which is within the gates. We're called upon to come out 
of the gates out of that city and we're called upon to separate ourselves to Jesus outside the gates where Jesus is. Let us go to him. Let's go to him. So to go to Jesus is to choose his rejection. To choose his rejection. To choose his being despised. There is far too much in evangelical Christianity of man the self-exaltation of man, the praise of man. That man is so important and God's kingdom cannot do without people, right? Like these people. What utter nonsense. Who's willing to go outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the walls, and be degraded and defiled and identify with Jesus in his sufferings? Who's willing to do that? That's what Jesus says the price is. You want to follow me? Die daily, every day to yourself. Pick up that cross, which is a symbol of death, and give yourselves over to death to self. And then, come, follow me. You know, when Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and saw uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he said to them, come follow me, they had really no idea of the cost of discipleship. I mean, Peter even goes so far as to say, they may fall away, but not me. And he was the first to deny Jesus. It's not an easy thing to go outside the camp, outside the gates. To choose Jesus, to go to Jesus, is always to choose rejection and being despised. Or is verse 13, look at verse 13, to bear the reproach that he endured. The King James, the New King James, the New American Standards all put it like this, bearing his reproach. Let's go to him outside the gates, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. The word bear, this word pharaoh, means to carry. You can see how pick up your cross, carry your cross. That idea is all part of it. In fact, that word pharaoh is used in Hebrews 1, verse 3. Pharaoh, he upholds the universe. He maintains, he sustains, he bears, he carries the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. Same word. He bears it. He carries it. And so here, in verse 13, let us bear the reproach he endured, is to carry the burdens of difficulty that are brought by any circumstances in your life and endure them. Because Christ endured reproach. Let us bear the reproaches that He endured. His reproach. Not someone else's. No, just Jesus. There's a difference between the Jesus of the Bible and the modern Jesus. The modern Jesus is like a psychologist. He can help you. He can deliver you. He can give you some guidelines. He's an excellent example. He's a wonderful moral teacher. And the whole idea in critical German liberal theology, which began back in the 1800s, was aimed at dismantling the Jesus of the Bible, or to put it another way, the Jesus of history. And the Jesus of history came from outside of history into history and became guilt, bore our guilt, 
took our sin, died in our place, lived a guilty, guiltless, sinless, holy, blameless life. A real, genuine person that Simon Peter had no question identified living with, spending time with for three years, and then after the resurrection, identifying with him that he is the Son of God who came into history. But the modern preacher is not interested in you that. It's more about making you feel good. About making you feel better about yourself. Because shame, there's so much guilt heaped upon you. There's no guilt heaped upon you. You are guilty. Right? You are guilty. Nobody's heaping guilt on anyone. You are already guilty to the nth degree. The writer to the Hebrew says, the solution to all of that is go outside. Join him. Go to Jesus and bear the reproach that he rebore. This word reproach is an unjustifiable action. It might be verbal, right? Directed against you. Jesus, they heaped insults upon him. He bore these reproaches, inflicted by others, to bear abuse heaped upon you, to bear disgrace, to bear reviling. This is what Romans 15 verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69.9, Messianic Psalm. Peter says, if you are insulted, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Isn't that a wonderful thing? There's no need to be ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. No need to be ashamed of the cross. No need to be ashamed of Jesus. Let's go to him. Now, I want you to just turn back to chapter 11 and look at verse 24. Chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. So Moses, notice, is willing to suffer on behalf of his people as the Lord Jesus did. And in that sense, Moses bears the reproach of Christ. Why did he do that? Why did Moses do that? Because he did so because he's motivated by the reward that's coming. And so the reproach of Jesus to Moses is worth infinitely more to him than all the treasures of an ancient glorious kingdom like Egypt. Not one treasure can compare. Put them all together, none compare with the reproach of Christ. Because you see, dear congregation, ultimately what does the world offer us? It's not offering you salvation. Oh, it might couch what it offers you as some kind of saving thing, but it's no salvation. It just makes you good, feel good for today. But tomorrow you've still got the same problem. Because sin has to be dealt with outside the gate. That's why we must go to Him, right? So we are called upon as disciples, as followers of Jesus, to abandon everything. To follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You are called upon to abandon anything that hinders you from bearing the reproach of Christ. You can't go outside the gate and keep whatever it is you want. 
your sin. No, because sin is dealt with outside the gate. All of it. You can't, can't keep some back. Everything is dealt with by Jesus. So disciples must deny themselves. They must forsake themselves. They must forsake this world, this Egypt that we live in. We must forsake it. We must forsake its pursuits. We must forsake its pleasures. It's interesting to me how the world offers us its pleasures. It's not so bad. Whether it's sporting pleasure or entertainment pleasure, whatever. And usually what we try to do, by the way, is define the, 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 the sinfulness of the pleasure or the, define the pleasure as being acceptable to us, therefore it's acceptable to God. Well, there's no bad language in it. There's no, there's no immorality in it. Therefore it's acceptable to us. But there are pursuits that we may pursue that hinder us, though they may be valid in and of themselves from Christ. You have your pursuits and Christ. Jesus says you can't have that. It's me and only me. You see, to be a Christian is, is, a, is a very difficult thing in one sense. I mean, to deny yourself is to go against what your inclination is. To preserve, to look after, to guard, to protect, to keep myself. When Jesus says, lay your life down for me. Because I laid my life down for you. So disciples are to forsake the world. So we generally regard this kind of separation as extreme, right? But to deny yourself is to die to yourself. And to die to anything that comes between you and Jesus. So in frank, frankly, it is extreme. Yes. Yes. Don't you dare and me level the extreme or the extremity of it. Because what Jesus is asking you and me to do is follow Him to die every day. So don't adapt your Christianity and I mustn't adapt my Christianity to suit my pleasures. No. Moses didn't do it. Left Egypt with all of its power and pleasure Everything. And it is extreme, isn't it? Because Jesus himself reminds us of how extreme it is. Whoever loves father or mother more than me. You do love your moms and dads. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. No question. Family relations and family ties are extremely potent and powerful. Jesus says, if you love your father or your mother or your children more than me, Son or daughter, you are not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Or to put it another way, if you're not prepared to go to that extreme, you cannot be my disciple. You are not my disciple. So we must therefore, what Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says, is be like him. Completely. Outside the gate where he endured shame and reproach. Let's go and join him and identify him. Because that's what he did for us. So we are called upon to emulate Christ, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in his sufferings and in his shame. So we're to fully identify, not partially identify, but completely identify with Jesus holding nothing back 
And when you do that, you bear his reproach. You're willing to take it. Or to put it like Paul did, Philippians chapter 3.10, we must enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, even becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. Be willing, if need be, like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who in that very last verse of chapter 7, it says he died outside the city. Where is he? He's where Jesus was, outside the city, dying, laying down his life for the sake of the Son of God. Now these Hebrew Christians have done those things. They have, they have gone to Jesus outside the camp. They have believed him. They've gone to the cross. They've been there. But now they are getting weaker. They are flagging. And they are weakening in their resolve. They are being lured back. They are being led away and astray, back to that old covenant, which is the old city within the walls and the temple. Why is that? Because they hoped that they might find an easier way of life. There is no easy life for a Christian. There is no easy life. Now let's face the facts in America. We are so more prosperous than anybody else in the world by, by a zillion fold. What are you willing to give up? These Hebrews, it's said of them, they, they joyfully accepted the plundering of all their property for Jesus. And they were quite happy to identify with those who were thrown into prison. That's the reproach of Jesus. They were willing to identify that with that, right? So no, there is no more respectable existence back in the city, back in the temple. Don't be lured back there, the writer to the Hebrews says. That's not a respectable in, uh, existence. So just as Moses left Egypt <coughs> excuse me, behind, you must leave Jerusalem. And you must leave Mount Sinai behind. In fact... <coughs> The entire history of Jerusalem, the entire history of the city of God with all of its glory and with all of its splendor is ultimately one of destruction, isn't it? What did Nebuchadnezzar do to it in 586? He burnt it to the ground. Why? Because Israel was guilty of sin. God judged them. What did Rome do in AD 70? They burnt it to the ground. Why? Because Israel crucified outside the gate the Son of God. His blood be on us and our children. Right? Every restored temple in history, in Israel, every restored temple with its worship and its priesthood has been doomed to destruction. So when Jesus dies outside the camp, it's done. Forever. Any idea that there is in the world today about restoring some temple in Israel goes counter to the work of Jesus Christ because he's dismantled it forever. There's no safety for these Hebrews inside Jerusalem. None. None. There's no security behind its walls, the walls of the world. Egypt, no security. I read an interesting address this week that's recorded in the Jewish Wars by Josephus. 
of King Agrippa, who, the King Agrippa who, who had an audience with the Apostle Paul, right, in Acts chapter 26, that King Agrippa. King Agrippa made an appeal to his fellow Jews to not antagonize the Romans. And he used, and Josephus records this, he used every persuasion and every argument that he could come up with to try and restrain the Jews from the insanity of revolting against the Romans. In fact, he describes Rome's vast power. He says the extent of their dominion from north to south, from east to west is just massive. In fact, he even says this. He says those Romans, they have crossed the ocean and carried their arms as far as the British Isles. You never knew somebody mentioned the British Isles 2,000 years ago. But King Agrippa did. They have taken the extent of their power across the sea and taken the British Isles which were never known before. But he leaves his final argument to the end and he says this, his final argument, the reason he says for Rome's unparalleled success is the providence of God. The reason Rome is at the height of its power, the reason this world is at the height of its power is because of the providence of God. And so Agrippa says, and therefore it's futile to contend. Go outside the camp. The writer to the Hebrew says, go outside. Give up identifying in any way, contending in this sense, joining the world. No. And then he makes a final appeal to the Jews. He says, listen, have pity, he says. Have pity if not upon your children and wives, then upon this metropolis and upon its sacred walls. Spare the temple. Preserve the holy house with its holy furniture. For if the Romans get you under their power, they will not abstain from destroying everything. And I call, he says, to witness your sanctuary in the temple and the holy angels of God and this country common to us all that I have kept nothing back from you that will lead to your preservation. And then Josephus says, King Agrippa broke down and wept. And his sister Bernice, who was with him, who was with him when Paul spoke to him, broke down and wept as well. They didn't listen to Agrippa. No, they revolted against Rome. And Titus and Vespasian destroyed them. Destroyed them. They revolted and Rome destroyed them. It was the end of the old. The end of the old. You see, God uses the kingdoms of this world to dismantle something He instituted. Holy ground, a holy city, holy walls, a holy temple, holy furniture, holy priesthood. He dismantles it completely by Jesus. By Jesus. So I remind you, dear congregation, where is Rome? <laughs> there is no more Rome either. Because God has brought judgment on Rome. You see, dear brothers and sisters, there is here in this world no lasting city for you or for me. My motivation to go outside the gate to the Lord Jesus Christ is not because of what's here. 
It's not because of what's here and what the world offers. Because what the world offers is only temporary and only passing away. But look at verse 14. It is as verse 14 puts it. Because of where I am going. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There's no insulation for me, for you in this world. And for Jerusalem, long ago, it was all rendered obsolete by Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that I don't have a home or a city. No, I do have a home and I do have a city. In fact, it's the only real home and real city that I have. My house, which is just up the road, is temporary. It's not my final home. It's just a place that I'm sojourning because I am journeying to my real home to my real city, which is an eternal city, not like Jerusalem, earthly. No, this is the heavenly Jerusalem that I'm traveling to and you are traveling to. That's my home. How do I know that? I know it by faith. Because Hebrews 11 tells me that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things I've never seen. I know them to be true. That's what faith does, right? Therefore, like Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, we seek the city that is to come whose foundations are, and builder is God himself. A city where Jesus is. A city above. Not here, below. I'm a stranger here. I'm an alien here. What constitutes my strangeness? I bear the reproach of Jesus. That's why I'm strange. That's why the world says something wrong with those people. There's nothing wrong with us. Nothing. We belong to Jesus, that's all. We seek our homeland, don't we? I'm going to a better home. We seek a heavenly country, a heavenly city, which God has prepared for us. Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm going to build many mansions for you. I'm going to build the city for us. Your home. My home. God is not ashamed, by the way, to be called their God. Isn't that the motivation we need to go outside the camp, outside the gate, and join with Jesus Christ? Why? So that we can be like Him. So that we can be with Him. So let's go to Him. Because that's what a disciple does. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for everything that Christ has done for us, your Son. He suffered outside the gate, and he calls upon us, his people, to go to him and bear his reproach, to be like him. And We face many uh, tests and allurements and temptations in the world. The only way, Father, that we can deal with that is to deny ourselves and pick up our cross every day and follow Jesus. To go to Him where He is outside the gate and now in the heavenly Jerusalem for us, interceding for us to bring us home. This is what we are as believers in this world, strangers, foreigners, exiles. But we are going home and you are bringing us there. 
In the meantime, Father, make each one of us like your Son. Conform us to his likeness and his image, so that we might please you and glorify your holy name. Thank you now, Father, for this day, this Lord's Day. Thank you for your word. Bless it to us, we pray. And help us as we go about our daily work tomorrow. May what we have heard today be an encouragement to us and a strengthening of our resolve to be Christians, as we are called upon to be, to be disciples. So thank you for these things. We commit ourselves to you now. Bless us as we part. May Jesus be praised by us, in us, and through us. For we ask it all in his name and for his sake. Amen.